Hi there. Thank you for listening to the SEA podcast. What you're about to hear is one of three bonus episodes recorded at Bloom San Francisco, a unique event hosted by the Barista Guild of America. For the past few weeks, we've been bringing you great lectures from the 2017 Specialty Coffee Expo, and we hope you've been enjoying them. In the coming months, we'll be adding some geographical diversity to the feed by bringing you lectures from SCA and Guild events from around the globe. So stay tuned. And once again, thank you so much for listening. One more thing before we get started with this episode. The SCA is now accepting lecture proposals for the 2018 Specialty Coffee Expo. So don't miss your chance to present at Expo and to potentially appear on the SCA podcast. Learn more at scanews.coffee forward slash lectures18. That's scanews.coffee forward slash lectures18. Okay, let's get started. Welcome to the Barista Guild's Bloom podcast series, brought to you by Olam Specialty Coffee, connecting roasters to the finest specialty green coffees. The following is a talk presented live at Bloom San Francisco, hosted by the Barista Guild. Um, Thank you so much, Todd. Um, I'm really happy, really honored to be here with you guys today. Um, See a lot of wonderful faces here. And uh, this topic is really near and dear to my heart, and it affects everyone here in this room. As we all know, millions of farmers around the world rely on coffee as their main source of income. And although coffee has a lot of threats and challenges, there's one that faces its biggest existential threat. If you know what this is, raise your hand. Good, everyone does. Um, This is uh, La Roya also known as coffee leaf rust. Uh, And this plant choking fungus is, when it affects an area, it can wipe out entire populations of coffee. How big of a problem is it? Uh, In 2013, Costa Rica lost 60%, Guatemala 70%, and El Salvador over 75% of their coffee productions because of this fungus. That's $1 billion and over 100,000 farmers were at the brink of starvation. It was so bad in Guatemala that the government issued a state of emergency. And with all that that happened, less than 0.1% of global coffee revenue is spent on research and development. What this means is that we have this huge problem and nobody is taking it seriously. Um, How big of a problem can this be? Really big. This is a really nice picture. Um, It's from Ceylon, which we now know as Sri Lanka. And it's the pulping station. You can see inhabitants in the front with their bags of coffee. Most people here don't know, but I didn't know this. Sri Lanka was one of the biggest producers of coffee at one point. Over 36 million kilos of coffee was being produced on that island. And in the mid-1800s, it was wiped out completely because of this. This is an article from 1869 that talks about a vicious virus, fungus, that began to attack the island's coffee population. This was the earliest um, forms of uh, La Roya that attacked a coffee-producing country. And in a matter of a few years, the entire country's coffee population was gone. And the reason why we hear a lot about Ceylon tea or Sri Lankan tea is because 
they began growing tea because it was resistant to this disease. And this has happened in the past. And it's a very real threat for people and farmers around the world. And if, we don't, uh, if we're not careful and don't uh, think collectively and seriously about this issue, it can happen again. How do we find a solution for this problem? I'm a big believer that we have to look at our past and know where we came from to understand where we're going. And if we look back at coffee's roots, we find keys to this, or answers to these questions. There is a difference of opinion whether or not coffee begins in Ethiopia or Yemen. But everyone can agree that the first country to begin production and commercialization of coffee was Yemen. And for those who don't know, there's actually a city in Yemen, a port called Mocha. And it was the first place where coffee was, was, was commercialized and exported. And the reason why coffee is being sold around the world. Fun fact, when we hear the word mocha, oftentimes the thing that comes to mind is this delicious coffee chocolate drink. The story behind that is that when coffee began being grown in other countries, uh, there were certain varieties of coffee from Yemen that had very unique characteristics of chocolate. And so in these other countries, they wanted to imitate that taste. So they would put chocolate in their coffee to make it taste like the coffee that came from mocha, hence mocha. Uh, and this time period was very interesting. Um, when we talk about coffee and the history of coffee, there's not much that, that's spoken about this time period from the 1400s to the 1600s, where Yemen was the only producer of coffee in the world. In that time, it was illegal to sell green seedlings to foreigners. So the only seeds that were sold were seeds that were boiled. That way the embryo in the beans in the, would die and you couldn't grow it again. Sort of an early form of Monsanto. Bad joke. Um, but if you did, you'd be executed by Yemeni authorities. That's how much they cared about this commodity, this precious thing they had and they produced. Uh, the first people who consumed coffee were actually Sufi monks. They loved coffee and loved how it helped them and, and they believed that God had sent down this plant to help humans reach higher states of consciousness and to stay up awake during night prayers. And there's a lot of wonderful literature that comes out this time period and poetry about coffee, which is actually an Arabic word, qahwa, means wine. Uh, and to give you an idea how coffee was produced in Yemen, uh, this is a video that I took on my iPhone um, in 2013. It's hard for me to try to describe Yemen and its beauty and how they produce coffee, uh, but this video showcases it. When people ask me, like, they, did the whole world's coffee production come from one country? Yeah, at one time it did. And this is a region called Bura in the western part of Yemen, and those are all coffee trees as far as the eye can see. I remember when I first went here, um, first of all, it was a really crazy hike. Whenever uh, I come back from Yemen, I use, usually lose a lot of weight. This, this first time I lost 40 pounds. Um, I also contracted malaria and tapeworms, but that's a different story. <laughs> but when I was in these, in this, these village areas, I was just absolutely in shock at how amazing, how breathtaking these views were uh, and how serious coffee was for the livelihood of these people. What's interesting in Yemen is that it's not just they have these very unique varietals of coffee. It's that even within these varietals, they were developed and engineered for centuries. One of the areas where I work in, uh, in the province of Sana'a, they have documents that talk about the coffee tax they paid to the local feudal lord dating back 600 years. And so they have these land races where coffee varietals were developed and engineered for centuries. Um, and so 
how did coffee get from Yemen to um, San Francisco, California? Um, there's different accounts and stories, but the, the Dutch VOC company were the first to open up shop in Mocha around the year 1616. A year later, the French and eventually the, the East India Company did. And so uh, the story goes that seven seeds were stolen out of Yemen. Um, first by a, a monk named Baba Badun, but then by the Dutch spies. And these few seeds were taken to the colony on the island of Java. And that's where the name Java comes from. Java and Mocha were the, these first two places that gave coffee to the world. Eventually, the Dutch um, gave seedlings to the French. This is actually a longer presentation that I love to talk about. But because of our time, and you guys eventually have to leave today, I have to keep it shorter. But it's really an amazing history of coffee spread. But in short, the French, uh, in 1721, a man named Gabriel de Clou took cuttings from that uh, and took it to the New World. That, is, that was called the noble tree. And most of the world's coffee production traces its roots back to a single tree. From there, it made it to the island of Martinique in the Caribbean, and then from there, Haiti, then Central and South America. And now Brazil produces almost a third of the world's coffee from that one noble tree, from seven seeds from, from Indonesia, from Yemen and Ethiopia. It's pretty fascinating how the entire world's production of coffee comes from just a few seeds that came out of Yemen. We know the two major varietals that come out this time period are the Tipica, where we get the Murgahepe and the Ken and Blue Mountain from, and the Bourbon, that was planted on the island of Bourbon. Um, and so this is actually a huge problem. And the reason why uh, Ceylon was devastated by that fungus was because of monoculture. Not that many other varietals were available. And that's a huge problem in biology. It's called genetic bottleneck. And what essentially happens is that when you don't have different varieties or a diversity in genetics, when a virus attacks, a disease attacks a coffee plant, it can destroy the entire population of coffee. So it's very important to have these um, varieties and this diversity. And so what can we do now today? It's hard to pinpoint where coffee begins as a plant. Based on the World Coffee Research Program, they've been doing amazing work with the Coffee Quality Institute and Texas A&M University. And there was one professor, a friend of mine named Dr. Amin Al-Hakimi, who's a coffee genetics professor from Sun'a University. And he was on a Fulbright scholarship, and based on their work, um, a couple of interesting things they found. This area uh, in Ethiopia and the western mountains of Yemen is where the birthplace of coffee arabica. Um, in the entire coffee community, or producing community, there's less than 1.2% of diversity. That's extremely low. To give you an idea, Todd was telling me yesterday that in corn in the US, we have 20% of diversity within corn here, and that's also considered low. So the entire world's coffee production is only 1.2% of diversity within those. Um, and so I began my work in Yemen in 2013. This beautiful picture is from a, a mountain village in northwestern Yemen in the area called Haraz. Uh, we actually have coffee that we're brewing for you guys today from this same area. It's very harsh, very little rainfall. Coffee is grown at 2,500 meters above sea level, making it some of the highest grown coffee in the world. Yet in this harsh environment, coffee is thriving and being grown. This is a picture, um, and you can see the, the beautiful terraces that grow coffee here. There's no shade trees. Uh, these coffees have acclimated and become used to drought. You can see that picture, uh, that mountain in the middle, that's a village on top of that. You know, hiking up, that's where I lost a lot of my weight. 
Um, and that person on the left, it's me trying to look like a brown Indiana Jones. <laughs> and so I got to go to 32 regions in Yemen, and I zigzagged from the port of Mocha. I met these amazing farmers, heard their stories, and learned about their amazing coffee. Um, in the process, I began to educate them on better practices, why it's important to pick ripe red cherries, paying them more for those ripe red cherries, um, giving them tools like moisture analyzers and building drying beds for them. And in the process, we produced some absolutely amazing coffee. Um, it was the most expensive coffee per pound to produce. And so uh, we brought it over here, and every single cup and table it's been on, it's always been like one of the best coffees on the table, if not the best. I remember the first time we cupped at a, at a coffee a roaster, it was Blue Bottle. I was really nervous because I showed up and they had a table full of these amazing coffees around the world. And I've heard it, and, and they had my coffee there. They didn't tell me they would put my coffee with other coffees. Uh, it was a blind taste, and, and there was one coffee that stood out amongst all of them, and that was our coffee. Uh, I remember James Freeman, he said, this is what angel singing tastes like. And then another fun moment was George Howell, one of my coffee heroes, who doesn't really like natural coffees that much, um, rarely buys them. So when he tasted our coffees and bought one of our lots, that was a huge, huge deal for me. He told me these coffees are very unique and in the way they're grown in Yemen, when coffee was produced in other countries, it was hard to produce naturally processed coffees. So that's why washed coffees happen. When, when you go to environments that are very humid, uh, a lot of rainfall, natural coffees can be produced there. But he loved the coffees and it ended up being sold for $16 per cup, making it one of the most expensive coffees in the world. And the reaction to the consumers was they actually loved the coffee. It was wonderful, this coffee that was drought resistant and did well, but it was absolutely amazing that the coffee actually tasted wonderful and consumers loved the coffee and bought it. So much so that the specialty coffee price index jumped 8.1% in that quarter. And they have a footnote at the bottom. You can, and I read it, it said, one coffee in particular, the much Bollywood Yemen Haima Hussein al Habat, sold by Blue Bottle, played an influential role in skewing the second quarter numbers upward. The Transparent Trade Group said that if the 173.33 per roasted pound coffee were removed the index, from the index, the price would fall from $24 to $22.72. This, this one lot of coffee they bought affected the entire price index of the quarter, especially coffee. And in the end, I really, I believe that it's up to us as an industry to look at this threat seriously and begin working collectively to find solutions for that. What would happen if we were able to take some of these varietals from Yemen and help give them to farmers in Guatemala, in El Salvador, in Costa Rica? How many lives could we infect there? And also people here who want to taste these beautiful coffees. Yemen really brought coffee to the world, and I really believe that Yemen can help us stay here. Thank you so much for giving me this platform. I feel really honored to speak here. Um, uh, I feel like I'm speaking on behalf of thousands of farmers in Yemen that I work with, and it's rare that I get an opportunity to talk about this specific topic. And so I really wanted to just give a, a round of applause for everyone from Bloom who organized this event and allowed me to come here. Thank you so much. For those of you first-time uh, Bloom uh, attendees, I mean, the, the format here, again, is very loose. Uh, we have uh, Slido that we're using to organize any questions for those of you who'd like to submit them that way. Uh, we'll also uh, put an open call and we'll be running microphones. 
Um, so please, if at any point you have something that uh, you'd like to bring to the floor, please just put your hand up. It's not interrupting at all, um, and we'll s sort of uh, approach on a first-come, first-served basis. But I guess, um, you know, one thing immediately that I think would be really interesting, maybe some of you to agree, but, you know, knowing and being involved in green coffee uh, trade at, at this time, you know, it's logistically very challenging, to say the least. To, uh, to bring coffee out of Yemen. And I, I'm just so curious from your work in recent years, like, can you just share like an interesting uh, story of maybe some challenge you've faced in getting coffee out, physically sampling, um, you know, just very practical given, given the political climate and what's going on? Yeah, I was, when I talk about coffee, I always mention that coffee, you know, it takes a whole community to produce coffee and coffee crosses borders and cultures and a lot of political hardships. Um, in, our, in our work, it's really a difficult working out of Yemen, a country that's in an active war right now. Just myself trying to get, the, get in and out of the country. Uh, in 2015, when I, I was scheduled to come to the SCA conference in, in April, I was stuck there and they bombed both airports. Um, I didn't talk about this in my presentation, but most of you probably know I, I had to take a small fishing boat and I crossed from the port of Mocha, the Red Sea to Djibouti with my coffee samples. Um, and just even monthly, just getting our samples shipped out, um, going in other country, getting our coffees shipped out was very difficult. Uh, our second shipment, we had to airlift it out on a UN chartered flight. Um, our last shipment, it's you know, knocking on a wood somewhere here. It lands in the middle of next month here in the port of Oakland. Uh, and so it's really difficult, but I believe that if you focus on quality and the story of the farmers and you can educate consumers on that and the impact that they have, it does really well. But you have to have a product that really tastes wonderful. Um, and so for me, it's just, uh, it's a challenge, but you have to f uh, find creative solutions to overcome them. Wow. All right. Um, I guess another, another thing that comes to mind and is sort of an interesting uh, way to I don't know how far we'll, we'll go in this direction, but, but it certainly comes to mind, you know, a lot of us active at retail, maybe, uh, you know, supporting coffees in how they're marketed. Uh, we fancy separation, right? We fancy uh, singular variety, you know, focused uh, cup characteristics, uh, very separated lots, uh, whether that be geographically, often geographically and by variety, things like this. I guess I, it, you know, thinking both uh, macro scale, micro scale, um, you know, in light of what you bring up as, as sort of the, the genetic bottleneck and the lack of diversity creating a huge tipping point uh, potential. Um, you know, I guess, what would your opinion be for, for a secure future for specialty coffee? Uh, and, and in the same respect, you know, is it very common, uh, you know, are you seeing vast mixtures of uh, mutated heirloom varieties? Uh, is it less common and, and much more stable to, um, to work from a wider base of varieties from a, a farmer, single farmer perspective? You know, and is that something maybe we should export as, as an idea to other parts of uh, coffee's production chain? Part of the answer to that is that the current way coffee is being produced and distributed is not sustainable. Um, and 2013 should have been a wake-up call for us. 
at the huge effects that, that can happen. I brought up the story of Sri Lanka because that was a real case of a, 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 not just a, no, uh, a small coffee producing country, it was one of the largest producers at that time, and now it produces nothing. So um, looking at diversity and the way coffee is being grown in other countries, uh, I think it's very important. And then in terms of consumers, yeah, they love having varietals. They love being very unique. Um, and we go as far as even having single formal lots. So we separate these farmers who some have less than 400 trees. Um, and so you gotta find a, a balance where it works. Um, and in short, yeah, you need to find the way things are going right now, it's not gonna be sustainable. And I think that it's not, it, doesn't, it doesn't cost much to, to fund this kind of research. I think that we as an industry need to figure out ways to fund this research collectively and find solutions. Yemen happens to be a country that's open to, the, to sharing its varieties with the world. Other countries like Ethiopia, they have very close, they've had, um, they're le less likely to be open, but in our situation, the, they work directly with Sala University. Is there, as we pass out this coffee, is there anything further in terms of detail that you might want to share for, or for expectation or why tasting this coffee is special to you? Um, well, the, I mean, me knowing the journey it took to get here, how, how it was picked, how it was processed, a country that, you know, 80% of the population is food insecure. The largest cholera outbreak in the world is happening now. Over 300,000, I'm sorry, 400,000 people are affected. Um, and so it's important to me to get this coffee to people who, want, who can help bring support to these farmers. And in terms of a consumer, someone who loves coffee, it's amazing. It's really, the body is so juicy and so um, wonderful, very creamy. It has a very fruity aftertaste. These coffees actually do really well when, they're, when they cool. I always say when they cool, they roll. <laughs> so drink them very slowly. Um, it's wonderful coffee. They, uh, it's, it's been winning a lot of awards recently, and I think it's because uh, they're just interested in varietals that grow in Yemen. Very cool. Um, yeah, a question coming through anonymously um, that sort of is a follow-up here. I mean, are, is, are we at the stage um, in country in Yemen where certain really promising varieties have been identified and separated and sort of looked at? Are we ahead of that? Is that something in the foreseeable term or? Well, for us, there's one varietal that we, we work with. It's called Udaini, U-D-A-I-N-I. And some call it the grandfather of Tipica, but uh, it's a varietal that we work with in Yemen, I found to be really unique. There's lots of varietals, but this one is one we focus on. It's kind of like our geisha. It's just absolutely incredible. And within the different regions it's grown, it changes um, slightly its flavor profile. Uh, but that's, that's in my own effort, and I don't have much funding behind me. Uh, so that's why I always, you know, I think that having institutions like the Coffee Quality Institute, especially Coffee Association, the World Coffee Research Program, and, and really wonderful professors and people like Manuel Diaz and Mario from CQI um, and Marcelo from, also from CQI, doing this kind of research would be really helpful. There's, there's so much to, to learn. We, I, I think on this side of the value chain, there are some improvements in roasting and brewing you can make, but they're incremental compared to the amount of unknown, like a vast ocean of like unknown knowledge is still at origin. 
Um, and a follow-up question coming through as well is, you know, is is the focus going to be uh, quite uh, more practical in, in highlighting and then distributing uh, specific varieties for their behaviors, or is the uh, is the strategy more to identify genes and and uh, what sort of programming these varieties might have that gives them drought resistance and certain character and hardiness? Um, That's an interesting question. Um, I'm always hesitant with the certain things like. With si in terms of science and genetically modifying things, I think that this answer is probably better for someone who's who's more in coffee genetics. But in my my knowledge, I would say that um, we should look at things that are are resistant towards these diseases, definitely. Um, but also the flavor profile. I think that at the end we have to get this cup to a consumer, and. It has, and I, I think that what, in the case of Yemen, we have a really unique situation where you have the best of both worlds and, and coffees that are very unique. They can deal with these diseases, but they also taste really amazing. Uh, I think I would be interested in finding some of those varietals and seeing if there are similar areas um, in Central and South America with similar climates that can, that can grow these varietals and do well in. Um, sort of a shift of gears, but um Maria brings up a, a really interesting question. I mean, you mentioned that uh, on average or, or maybe the, the majority of farmers are relatively small holders with maybe 400 trees. Uh, first, could you anticipate a certain commercial volume once processed from approximately 400 trees just to give a sense of scale? Um, but then also, um, you know, how is uh, farming in terms of tending to the farm, the trees, harvest and collection and then processing, uh, how is that handled? Is this a business that uh, is consolidated to the farmer and the farmer's family? And then also, you know, how uh, is that work divided um, by gender? And, and what are, you know, expectations around that? Um, and so our approach is, I'm, I call it the MOCA method. Uh, it's just a social and, qu and quality intervention program I do. And so on the quality side, we've identified certain varietals, there's certain elevations we look for, certain soil types, certain things that have, have the potential for greatness. And then on the quality side, we help them raise, build raised drying bed systems. Uh, we help them give them moisture analyzers. Uh, and this is very important because you want to produce something really wonderful. But what's really important to me is the social side. And it comes in the form of microloans. Farmers need to be taken care of. Um, there's a loan sharks who give out predatory loans in Yemen. And so what we do is we tell them, hey, come to us. We'll give you guys micro loans and won't charge you anything and give you high price points for high quality coffee. So the first year we paid for six weddings in one village. And they, they paid us back in coffee cherries. And since then we pay for you know, medical surgeries, college tuitions. And it's a really good program of where when people have their needs taken care of, they can have the ability to focus on quality. The second is definitely gender quality. Um, in Yemen, 75% of farmers are women. So in the beginning, actually, when I was doing my work, the quality wasn't really where I wanted it to be. And so uh, I, and I mandate that these cooperatives, uh, the way we, we don't own any farms. We go to an, a village or an area, we have them organized to a cooperative structure. We mandate that half the board members have to be women. Uh, and when we did that, the quality of coffee changed overnight. I remember going to the coffees and seeing how red the cherries were. And I would show the men and I'd say, see, there's a reason why women live longer than you. <laughs> um, and it's important 
women, women are the future for coffee. They grow coffee, um, having them part of that, that. And then we pay the highest price in the world for coffee farmers. Uh, we pay $6 a kilo for dry cherries, our lowest price points. Um, and so it's really expensive. And so that's kind of like the way we work. We go and we are able to give them these loans and give them these technologies, um, help them little organize themselves slightly, but they're the ones who are the ones who work really hard and produce these coffees. And that's really the hard part, getting the community buying from you. And I guess me being from the country, being able to put my, ha my Yemeni hat on, or my case turban, it, it helps out. So you said you're paying uh, approximately six USD per pound? Per, for, per kilo per, per dry kilo cherries. Per dry cherries. How does that compare, just out of curiosity, to like the market if another... I mean, it ends up... The average most coffee paid. farmers get less than 50 cents or something. It's really like astronomical how much we pay for coffee farmers. Our crappiest coffees in Yemen, the, the horrible coffees, are sold at, I believe, $9 a kilo green in the local market. And so for me, it was a really high, I had to, I had to come in and, and pay them more than that. Um, and the reason why is because most of Yemen's coffee goes to Saudi Arabia. They have all that oil money and they, they love Yemen coffee. Um, unfortunately, I'm, if you ever had Saudi coffee, it's delicious, but really it's, it's coffee lightly roasted with cardamom and ginger and saffron. Um, I've actually had Saudi coffee without any coffee in it. And so it doesn't matter how the coffee, <laughs> yeah. It doesn't matter how the coffee is picked, it's going to be masked, the defects will be masked by all these spices. And so we have to pay more for the farmer to pick red cherries. I'd love to just open the floor if there's anyone who would like to use their voice. Uh, we have a question up here. Um, so I want to know more about the goal that you had set to pay more for these coffees and did you imagine that the coffee community would be receptive to that? It seems like a really bold move you made to be like, I'm going to buy these coffees for higher prices and bring these here and the community is going to freak out. But like, were you nervous? Did you think that the community would be receptive to what you were doing? It's a really good question. When I first got into coffee, I just, I, I, I took the Q course and I learned some coffee stuff and I just went to Yemen. So I didn't know what the price point of coffee was, to be honest. I didn't know the commercial price. I didn't know how much people were paying for green beans at all. And so I went to Yemen and I'm like, okay, what is the cost of per kilo that these farmers need to make to live a dignified life? And it's one of the reasons why I have an issue with some fair trade, uh, where I don't believe the price point, it doesn't reflect the cost of production or cost of living for a farmer to live a dignified life. So that's why I started with, I was like, okay, I'm gonna charge this much. And I kind of went into like the, like the blue ball. I walked in, I guess like you can say naively arrogant. I didn't know, I just, this is how much the prices cost. And um, for them, they had just, they liked the coffee itself. And these blind tasting. And so had I known, I mean, I didn't know that people were very price sensitive. Um, and to be honest, if I, if I used the economics of some other coffee countries who have high-end coffees, like in Panama, and I, and I convert it into Yemen, it would be much more than what I'm charging. Uh, but no one's going to buy coffees for, you know, that much money. Yeah, I mean, that brings up a, an interesting point um, where you start dialoguing around currency. I mean, how does... Uh, there was a question earlier on Slido about, you know, how the conflict might have affected the cost of, of exporting and turning around and importing the coffee and connecting to roasters here, but, but also in terms of, you know, actually delivering cash for, you know, for coffee to a farmer? 
is there are there dynamics internally that that uh, also um, are you know add to the challenge, inflate costs, and things like that? Yeah, they, I mean, I remember when when the coffee first started, the inflation was crazy, uh, and so making sure you bought coffee at the right time. I'm really thankful to have a really wonderful CFO, uh, Ibrahim, in the back there. Uh, I always tell people he makes Excel sheets look sexy. Um, but it was very challenging. That was the issue. Even shipping coffee out, the second shipment, we, they cost us $14 per kilo to transfer our coffee out uh, on that um, airlift. And uh, we've been fortunate to be able to, like, um, yeah, the central bank moved a couple of times. But we've been able to transfer our funds and wire money into, into Yemen um, and to do that work. And so for me, like, if I can do this work in Yemen and produce this kind of coffee from, like, it's, it's such a difficult place to live and people are so impoverished. I wanted to rebrand the country and people to see it. These are people who actually produce wonderful things. If I can do that, I think that people can do it in other countries that don't have these issues. Awesome. I, you had a question in front here. Hi, thank you for your talk. Um, I was curious if the cost industry in Yemen is kind of occupying the same space and if these industries are mutually exclusive and one's crowding out the other and how do you kind of address that moving forward? Another great question. For those who don't know, there's a, a, a drug in Yemen um, called Qat. It's pronounced, it's spelled K-H-A-T or Q-A-T. It's also grown in East Africa and it's a very serious issue in Yemen um, for two reasons. One. For every one coffee farm, there's seven of these qat, these drug farms. And 20 years ago, when my parents were growing up, it was the opposite. Uh, the other reason is that it takes up a huge amount of Yemen's water resources, over 35%. Uh, actually, Yemen, the, the capital Sana'a, is supposed to be considered the first city to run out of water as early as next year. Um, so qat is a huge problem. Actually, one of my goals was if I, could, what if, if I can get the price point of coffee to a certain level, could I compete with this drug? Um, and if you go on our website, you can see some of our pictures. The first year uh, in this village we worked in, they took out 14,000 of those drug plants, coffee plants, and they planted coffee seedlings. And this was something that they did on their own. I was planning on doing this much later in the future, a couple of years from now. But for them, it made economic sense. And so I'm happy that, that, this, uh, that having them work on quality and having them being able to be get paid more for that and having someone be able to find the market for them, it was able, it was, in a way, able to find an alternative substitute. Uh, and I mean, I hope that I can replicate this in other parts in Yemen. Um, one question that seems to have attraction with a number uh, of, of folks here is, um, you know, of course, long-standing tradition of processing coffees dry and naturally um, in Yemen. Is there any sort of, uh, you know, are you curious at all or have you given any thought to potentially washing coffees or to using processing as a part of uh, another way to add value to these coffees and, and build wider markets for them? I'll tell you right now, the future of coffee is natural. It's also its past. Um, in Yemen, we don't have enough water to the wash process. That's one reason. Um, but the way we dry our coffees, by the way, uh, it's a little more intense. We do this slow drying. So we push them out to 18, 21 days. And there's an embryo in the coffee cherry that lives. So the longer it lives, the more it can convert starches to sugars. And you have a much higher shelf life also. Uh, and so, like, like George Howell said, what he liked about our coffees is that you can't tell that some of them are natural. 
We have some that have the fruity notes that you, that you want in natural. Some people love that. But we also have some coffees that are just, they absolutely taste washed. And the reason why is because of the climate. It's very arid and allows for a very um, even and nice dry. Uh, and so you don't have that funky, fermenty thing that happens with a lot of natural processed coffees. So I'm not really interested in washed at all in Yemen. Uh, I, I, like, I think we can develop natural even further. And if you see a lot of the, a lot of the competitions, naturals usually win um, those competitions. But I think buyers should start looking into those coffees for, for many reasons, even for, for uh, it's much more environmentally friendly. We waste billions of dollars on wash process coffees. Not to say I don't love wash process coffees. I do. There's some that are just pretty, really wonderful. But I just don't think it's sustainable in Yemen. Very cool. We have a question here. Hi, Mokhtar. How are you? Okay. Um, I have to start out by saying you're one of the most exciting stories in the entire coffee industry in the past couple of years. And I'm you know, getting to know you little by little and so exciting and so proud and so happy for you for all the successes. Um, I have two questions. First question is, um, this, you have a pretty, like a, a nice sort of tidy, very dramatic story of bringing the coffee out of Yemen. There's been rumors that someone's working on a book or a movie about your story. Can you talk about that? You're making me blush. And it's hard for a brown man to blush. Um, first of all, he's one of, one of my coffee heroes. Um, the work you're doing is absolutely amazing. If you guys ha pick up the next, or this edition of SF Magazine, the cover is... I'm just gonna let you see the cover and just see, it's pretty amazing. Um, it's not the cover, but it's okay. It's, or, or, or the cover of your, of, of your um, article for Wrecking Ball. Um, so, yeah, I mean, every, every coffee journey is a miracle, gets to us. You can say my, my story is a little more extreme. Um, this, is, this is the first time I'm gonna say this publicly. Uh, it's, so, from all the weird things that have happened to me, this is probably the strangest. Uh, about three years ago, this really, this really interesting, this guy came up to me. Um, I knew him from some friends. I didn't know he was famous. A headband on or something? No, he was really just, and I, I remember when I told Jody, actually, in Willem Boot, and I told him his name, they freaked out. Uh, Dave Eggers. Um, he's been following around the world the last three years, writing the story of specialty coffee. Uh, my journey growing up here in Tenderloin and my roots back to coffee. He's taking the Q course. He's really, he's been to Ethiopia, Yemen, and Djibouti. He's really just like immersed himself into coffee. Uh, and it's really cool. Um, and so the book is technically on Amazon for pre-order. We haven't made an announcement for it yet, um, but it's on Amazon and it's called The Monk of Mocha. And it's a really interesting story, I would say. Um, when I went to the publisher and I met, I was really nervous because I had never met someone who had read the whole book. And it's a lot of my personal life in it. And the first thing she told me was, I can't believe coffee comes from cherries. <laughs> I'm like, that's good. I mean, it was really wonderful hearing that reaction from her. And she's like, learn about coffee. So that comes out in January. And the biggest publisher in the world bought the rights, so it would be in most countries. Um, I'm not going to ruin the ending. I won't tell you if I make it. <laughs> but it's interesting. And yeah, that's, that's happening. And the second question is, um, you're a very special guy with a very special story. Um, you're also part of an interesting community of people in the coffee world that I just want to mention, which is, and ask you a question about, which is, you're American, but also you represent a coffee producing country. 
And there's a special group of people in our coffee world who kind of straddle both lines in that way. I wanted to know if, if there's anything worth mentioning or to share regarding that identity and how it, like for a lot of people, there's a lot of stories about confusion. It's like, you don't act like a coffee farmer, you know, kind of thing, or a coffee producer, the way that people have in their mind or that preconception. So what's it been like in that way, kind of being a bicultural person in that way, representing Yemeni coffee, but then fundamentally being an American? Um, I didn't see much diversity in coffee when I, uh, especially specialty coffee. It was, it's interesting, these coffee countries produce coffee, but you don't see much representation here. And there's a really, a, yeah, there's a growing group of people like Felipe from FAF in Brazil, um, Jeanine from Burundi's co from Coffees. There's a, and, and we play a role as bridgers. Uh, I think that this country is built by immigrants and it's wonderful when you are able to go back to your country of origin and bring some of its beautifulness and wonderfulness to this country and share that. Part of the book is about the concept of, of bridgers. Uh, I think that historically there have been lots of different things that stop producers from being liberated. Uh, we still have a lot of colonial problems that happen till today. Um, the further you get away from the farmer, the more profits they are. And it's pretty sad because these farmers, they need to be supported. And so being able to be a bridger, I mean, I, I have a duty, I feel, as, as a Yemeni to support my family's homeland. But as an American, you know, who I have... I kind of go into two different worlds a lot of times. Um, you know, I'll be in Yemen with my travel outfit on and my turban, listening to you know, Erica Badu or Biggie Smalls. And one, one journalist called me a travel Bedouin hipster. But yeah, I think in the future, I think it's really unique when you have these individuals that can play both ro roles. It's great for roasters also too, because the point is getting closer to the producer and hearing those stories. And being able to have someone like me come here, there are people from Yemen who are much more knowledgeable than me about Yemeni coffee but they lack the language barrier or they're because of certain immigration policies implemented, aren't able to come to this country. And so I feel it's my duty to try to be that bridge. Uh, and I think that, yeah, I think it's, it's a wonderful f if we can have more people like that do this kind of work. Thank you, for that, thank, you, thank you for that question. That's actually, I've never heard that before and it means a lot that you asked that. Thank you for your questions. Yeah, those are awesome. Um, can we clarify to get back um, just for a moment? Is Dave Eggers a Q grader? Not yet, not yet, but he is, he does want to be a Q grader. Wow. He's going to, he really wants to finish it. Uh, he's, I remember we did a triangulation, uh, you know, Jay Rusky from, from an amazing farm in Santa Barbara, Goodland Organics. We were there and we did a triangulation together and from the, there was actually a Q course class there and only him and I got the triangulations right. So he, there's potential for him to pass. Nice, nice. Um, uh, and, an excellent question coming through um, anonymously uh, on Slido here, and we just have a few more minutes, but uh, I would not want to, to pass on this. Um, how can we use the success, in your opinion, how can we use the success of Yemen coffees to promote positive cultural understanding about the Middle East, particularly towards xenophobic Western populations? Uh, you know what's wonderful about the specialty coffee community is that it didn't just take us like a, you know, um, it took a really strong radical stance on this issue. Uh, I was at 1951 Coffee in Berkeley and Doug and Rachel do an amazing job working with refugees, um, getting them trained to be baristas. And a lot of coffee shops like hired these baristas. And so um, uh, it's unfortunate that many people don't like politics, but they, it affects their life every day. But everyone drinks coffee. 
And so I think that coffee is a way for people to begin to go over these obstacles, these barriers, um, having a cup of coffee. One of my quotes at this point is really cliche, but I love this quote and I believe in it. Uh, I think that the shortest distance between two people is a cup of coffee. And so I think as an industry, one of the great things is that we can use coffee as a wonderful medium to bring people together. Um, it doesn't matter what side of the political spectrum you are on, you know, it, we, everyone's, everyone's either too right or too left now. And we're in this weird position where we have to find a way to feel common ground. You know, there's a huge segment of population who don't believe in, who don't look at things the way you do. Um, and I think that if we sat together and understood how they, how they thought and how they lived, we can learn from each other. And that, for me, is what coffee is about. When I mentioned earlier, when coffee left Yemen and entered Europe, it had a huge social impact. The French, American, and Russian revolutions all happened in coffee houses. And it was one of the first places where people began to have public discourse about social issues without class barrier. So I think now in our times today, we should refocus on that and bring coffee into that way and be a way for us to come together. We have time for just one more question. If anyone would like to bring something to Mokhtar, to the group. Okay. Well, I think I speak for all of us in saying you are fantastically inspiring. Like, um, we are so grateful that you decided to join us. Um, thank you so much for um, your presentation, your thoughtful approach to building equitable business um, and being willing to uh, take light shown on it, you know, as an example for uh, the possibilities to come. So uh, if you would, just please join me in thanking Mokhtar. You've been listening to a talk from the Barista Guild's Bloom podcast series. To hear more on topics relevant to the specialty coffee industry, visit www.sca.coffee forward slash podcasts and subscribe to this series. Thank you for listening.